hello and welcome to LO Governor the Podcast. As always, I am Abdullah, and my guest today is, introduce yourself, good sir. Hey everybody, my name is Eli Farmer. Uh, I am a voice actor based in Texas. Uh, many of you might not be familiar with my name, but my most recent work that people may know me from uh, is I've recently been cast as Joe Keto in Digimon, so that's really exciting. So the first question is the obvious one. How did you get started? Yeah. Uh, so my story is a little bit <laughs> sort of roundabout, maybe compared to the typical voice actor. Um, growing up as a kid, I never had the theater bug. I never had the singing bug. I, I never had the performer bug. Um, I was never really interested in any of the, the sort of arts. Um, and then transition to about middle school time. Um, I'm a really chubby kid. Uh, I'm all about anime and video games. So I was very much immersed like in that type of content. And it was something that I love, but again, wasn't something I ever saw myself particularly doing. Um, and then transfer that to high school. Uh, so during that time frame, I found the sport of wrestling. So that was kind of sort of my foundation as I was an athlete. My one sport was wrestling, but I was very much into that one sport, um, and it consumed my, my time up, down, left, right. And so I always thought that I was going to work in athletics. I, I wanted to be a strength coach. I wanted to train athletes. I wanted to make people big and strong and fast and all that good stuff. Uh, but funny enough, my high school actually doubled as our city's performing arts academy. So I was around theater kids and musicians and artists and all these really talented individuals, so I think that I gained an appreciation for the arts and I sort of absorbed <laughs> maybe some of their, I don't know what you would call it, energy, just talent through enthusiasm, just being in that environment. Um, and then I, I ended up going to college and in school I studied exercise science because again, that's what I wanted to do. Uh, and then about my junior year of college, um, I remember we were in, what was it? We were in our like morning workout practice and uh, we had, our, our university had just joined a new sports conference. So we moved up to like a bigger league, bigger conference, more, you know, screen time, more dollars, all that good stuff. And they had, had fired all of our old strength conditioning staff, replaced them with all new people. Because they were like, new, bigger, better, different. We got to have like, you know, just a clean sweep. And I was like, oh man, if I go into this career, I might not have job security. So I should probably like find a secondary thing that I can do that's going to give me some job security. And what did I do? I picked the most secure thing ever, entertainment. <laughs> um, and so... Then uh, that's when I, I sort, sort of started to really like research what voice acting was. Um, I didn't, you know, jump into it right then and there because I was still, you know, focusing on my studies. I was still all in on Plan A. Um, but then, you know, as, as time went on, I was like, voice acting sounds really cool. I really want to do it. Uh, maybe I should give it a shot. And so then after I graduated, I didn't go straight into a exercise science job. Um, I just got like a job. Something that would give me the ability to, at any point, chase this voice acting thing, you know. And so um, then from fast forward uh, a couple years later, um, or actually no, just one year later. Yeah, so fast forward one year later after I've graduated college, I'm like, all right, I'm moving down to Texas. So I moved down to Texas. Um, and then I start really going all in on this voice acting thing. You know, I had a day job, but 
voice acting was really what I was working towards. And so I got all of my training in voiceover. Uh, I did all of my training through the Global Voice Acting Academy, which I personally believe uh, if you're someone who's just getting started, it is a really, really great program for you to go through because you get personalized coaching. You have access to an entire library of every sort of webinar session thing that they've ever gone through. It's run by people who have been voice actors, who've had success in the industry, who still work, who still cast. So they know like what the current trends are. Um, and it gives you a curriculum in a sense. It's like one of the only things that I am aware of online that gives you kind of like a step-by-step, -step, like, all right, we train you. We work together for, you know, however many months we think it's going to take for you to create a, a competitive demo. Then we put that demo together and we start marketing you. Um, and so, yeah, so I went through the Global Voice Acting Academy. Uh, and after about, I don't know, I would say a year and a half or so, um, or actually, well, after about a year, I get my first agent. Uh, then a little bit after that, I got my second agent. And that's when I really started to book things. And so that was in 2021. And here we are now. So, I mean, you, you know, you come in from a background that's not theater. So, you know, you're, you know, it's, it's like, uh, it's like an, it's like a, a, what do you call it? Um, a JRPG quest or an RPG quest where <laughs> our hero, like, he, here's the call and it's like, okay, let's, let's, you know, take the call to the, the call to adventure and see where this takes me. Yeah, pretty much. You know, it's funny you use the JRPG reference. I don't know if any other kid ever felt like this. But growing up as a child, you know, I was so enamored with JRPGs. And I was like, I swear I thought that they were like real life. And so I would look at the ages of all these characters who were like 14, 15, you know, 16 years old protagonist. And mind you, I'm like 10, 11, 12. So I was convinced. I was like, all right, at age 14, I'm going to get sucked into some kind of portal and I'm going to go to some other world. And that's, that's just what my job is going to be. I don't need to worry about this real life stuff because I'm just going to be a hero at some point. <laughs> Little did you know that, uh, you know, once you become an adult, being an adult is really disappointing and not fun. <laughs> yeah. everyone hates it. <laughs> it's like, can we go back to being kids again? I, I hate being an adult. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Just the lack of responsibility was awesome. <laughs> it's like, it's funny because like when you're a kid, you're watching all these shows and playing all these video games and you're like, man, I can't wait to be an adult, you know, have a job, you know, have a stable source of income, <laughs> can stay up late, <laughs> all that fun stuff. And then, you know, you become an adult and you're like, oh, no, can we go back to being kids where I, I don't have to worry about responsibility? Yeah, they don't tell you about the trade-offs. <laughs> It's like responsibility. No one told me about this. You know, all all those TV shows lied to me, man. <laughs> yeah. It's like they made adulting seem cool, but it's really lame and I hate it's it. <laughs> so lame because they never include bills. That's the big part that they leave out is cost of living. Oh, yeah. Cost of living. And, and I think I said this like in a previous episode, but like. If you watch like a lot of these old sitcoms, it just feels like an alternative reality because it's like, yeah, you know, of course, you know, Friends takes place in New York. Of course, like they can afford those types of apartments on on, on their salaries, of course. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that makes total sense. Yeah, this is super realistic. Yeah, man. But, um, you know, you coming from a background that's not um, – you know, theater related or voiceover related. Like, I, I'm just wondering, like, 
what was it like going into to to um a field that you know was new to you from 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 the from the very beginning yeah you know i'm someone who has always sort of prided myself on my adaptability um i have two military parents uh, so both my parents from the navy so growing up as a child um, I experienced a lot of flux in my life. So I got sort of used to uh, being in a chaotic environment where there wasn't consistency. Uh, I mean, I spent most of my childhood with one parent in the house, you know, because of the way that deployments work, someone's gone for six months. Um, and then, you know, that parent that is home is working. So I was really left to my own devices a lot as a kid, um, really kind of had to sort of raise myself on my own in, in, in some instances around sort of that middle school era. Um, and then when I actually started wrestling, you know, for folks who aren't familiar, you know, with the actual sport of its sport of wrestling itself is one of the things that coaches will often say to you is that wrestling will prepare you for life more so than any other sport. And I never really understood what that meant um, until I got older. But my, my both of my coaches, my college coach and my, my high school coach really hammered that home. But my first coach, my high school coach, you know, he used to say that wrestling is just a funny way of spelling the word sacrifice. And so because you get so used to just like, well, I don't get to eat today or I don't get to have water today or I have to run 10 miles today so that I can make weight for this match or I have this tournament where I have to wrestle, you know, seven matches in a row because I lost in the first round. I don't want to get eliminated and I want to come back. And so doing all of these things, you just, you develop this ability to just endure really horrible situations. And so when I started voiceover, yeah, I wasn't particularly talented when I, I first began. I think I just had a lot of enthusiasm for it, but like, I didn't mind putting in tons of hours because I was like, well, this is just what it takes to get good at something. I learned that from wrestling. You know, I, I didn't mind having tons of failure because again, I got that from wrestling. When I first started wrestling, my very first year, my record was zero and 30. So I am not someone who's like, I need to win right off the bat, you know, in order to persist with something. Um, so all of those little life lessons that I had picked up from athletics translated very well to wrestling, or I'm sorry, translated very well to voice acting, I should say. Um, and so, yeah, I, I felt like it was actually not a really bad transition for me at all. Um, funny enough, because it doesn't seem like those two skill sets would match up, but I think it's just the mentality that I brought to it made it easier for me. And how did you take to dubbing? Was it easy or was it hard? Yeah, I would say I took pretty well to dubbing. Um, so the first thing that I ever dubbed was a show called Dragon Ghost House Hunting. It was my first ever dubbing role. It was my first ever thing that was on Funimation, which is now Crunchyroll. Uh, it was my first time ever recording on uh, Source Connect. So yeah, it was just like a whole bunch of like first. Uh, and so the director that I got to work with, who was really wonderful, her name is Alexis Tipton. Um, she was like, Hey, um, so I don't know, like, have you ever done this before? Like before we got started with the session and uh, I was actually like, no, this is my very first time. And she was like, Whoa, well, she was like, based on your audition, I was really surprised. She's like, cause I hadn't seen the name before. She was like, but your delivery was so great. I thought you had just been in the industry for a while. And I was like, Nope, I was like, this is my, my first outing. And so she walked me through the process of dubbing and she had the double challenge of, teaching me how to dub via remote because, you know, we were in the, uh, the height of the pandemic. So she was teaching me how to dub remotely. Um, and so she taught me all what the little like uh, abbreviations mean. And yeah, within probably like two or three minutes, I was right on the money. 
Uh, and I think the reason I translated well, again, going back to athletics, you know, when we're training in our sport of wrestling, we're doing drills. You know, you're having to be on the ground and then you're up on your feet and then you're 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 kneeling and then you're you're moving and you're you're grabbing this position and you're grabbing that position and you're holding on to a leg and then you're an underhook and all these different things and our coach is blowing a whistle you know he's like one two three two one two three two one two three two and so you get used to this like very frantic pace of okay i've got to be in perfect position within a matter of seconds i've got to be in perfect position within a matter of seconds and so that training of building up that timing translated very well to the process of dubbing. So when she was like, you hear the three beeps and go, I was like, oh my gosh, I've been doing this for years, you know, syncing up my, my timing to a, a very specific cadence. Um, so yeah, I, I, I took to it pretty well, I would say. So like, it was like a karate kid moment where it's like, oh, you know, you're just having me do chores, but then it's like, <laughs> oh no, actually what I learned was actually important. <laughs> Yeah, the wax on, wax off was was all in full force that day. <laughs> and and did you watch any um, anime growing up as a kid? Oh my gosh, yeah, <laughs> probably more than I ever should have. Um, so you know, as as a child, Pokemon and Digimon, um, well, those were my, my first sort of forays into anime. But you know, it's funny at that time I didn't know that those were anime. Um, I just thought those were Western cartoons. Like, I just thought they were cartoons like any other cartoon that was on TV. Um, so for me, I was just like, oh, yeah, those are cartoons. The first time that I watched an anime, and I remember thinking, whoa, this is not, a, this is not like other stuff I see on TV. Um, I was probably like seven or eight years old, and um, I've always been sort of a night owl. And so it was probably, I think, like 11 o'clock at night. And Yu Yu Hakusho had come on Adult Swim. And I heard Yusuke, like, curse for the first time. And I was like, oh, cartoon said bad word. What is this? And I was like, I was all in. Because it was like this secret thing that, like, I felt like I wasn't supposed to be <laughs> supposed to be watching. Um, and so that's the, the first moment that I felt like I was truly watching anime was when I saw the first episode of Yu Yu Hakusho. Um, but outside of that, you know, Dragon Ball Z, anything that came on that Toonami block... Um, I was all in on uh, the four kids stuff. I watched all of that stuff. And then well into my teenage years and even now into adulthood, I'm a consistent anime consumer. What are some of your favorite shows? Mm, yeah, so I would say some of my favorites, uh, of course, are Digimon. Again, not just saying that <laughs> for PR. Digimon is one of my actual favorite shows of all time. Um, I really enjoyed uh, the Gundam series. Uh, specifically Gundam Unicorn, um, Yu Yu Hakusho, Fantastic, uh, Naruto. Um, we're really into Jujutsu Kaisen right now, which is exciting. I know, right? It's so mainstream. Um, there isn't anything that I would say that I was really into that was particularly niche. Maybe uh, Gundam Iron-Blooded Orphans, but that was another popular show. Oh, one thing that I, I, I did really like that was maybe a little more under the radar is there is a series called Aquarion. Um, and I was introduced that to through the second uh, follow-up series to that, which is uh, Aquarion Evol. Uh, so I really liked Aquarion Evol. Um, oh, and then for some of you who are old enough to remember this show, there was this anime called Vandred, uh, and I loved Vandred as a kid. Um, look at you bringing up the obscure stuff. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I really do this. I'm not a poser, man. I've really been out here. <laughs> 
uh, one day I'll have someone on here who's like, yeah, I've seen the Giver. <laughs> I know what you're talking <laughs> about because I, I feel like I'm one of the few people who still who still remembers the Giver, but everyone's like, I've never seen that show, and I'm like, what? How how can yeah. you not? <laughs> <laughs> it's like one of the earliest animes I remember watching. When it was, it's funny because. Uh, you know, Yu Yu Hakusho, you know, you mentioned the story about Yu Yu Hakusho and one of the characters swearing, yeah. you know, me, me as a kid watching the Giver, you know, that kind of freaked me out because it's like, it was bloody, gory and all this other stuff. And it's like, <laughs> what, what kind of cartoon is this? You're like, should I be watching this? Am I going to get into trouble? <laughs> <laughs> That's when you know, it's like, oh, wait a minute. Animation does not ha just have to be for kids. You know, it can be for, you know, adults as well. And I think that's why... Uh, that's why anime is popular in general because they make it for everybody. It's not just for kids. Absolutely. That's why, like, everyone's trying to chase that trend now where it's like, oh, adults want to watch stuff that's not comedies. Who knew? Well, everybody yeah. knew, but it's like, it's finally nice to see, you know, Hollywood or studios finally realize, oh, yeah, but wait a minute. Um, Adults actually want to watch serious shows instead of just like the same old family sitcom over and over again. Yeah, you know, and I really do appreciate that, you know, that you're starting because the way that I think that the indie scene has really sort of come in and allowed folks to sort of do their own thing. You're, you're starting to see shows that you maybe not you wouldn't particularly have thought would ever have gotten a green light. Um, but now you know that folks can sort of do a huge crowd crowdfunding campaign and they can get a show funded and they can do a couple of episodes. You're starting to see opportunities for more, uh, I don't know if you would call them, avant-garde uh, <laughs> types of, of, of media, which I really appreciate. And then when those things are successful, the big studios are like, oh, well, we had someone else pitch something similar to this. Now that we know that it works, we'll also give it the green light. And so it, it just sort of allows for more diverse spread of media which i always think is good variety is the spice of life as they say yeah and especially nowadays when um anime just seems to be dominated by a lot of like isekai shows i'm like yeah i kind of need a, i kind of need something up. different <laughs> like yeah there's definitely still you know there's definitely still seasons where the, there's a certain trend that's popular um, but i still feel like by and large the catalog today is, is more diverse than it's ever been Oh, yeah. I mean, back in, what was it, the early 2000s, like, we were, we would be lucky to even get a lot of these shows dubbed, much less released officially in the States or worldwide, because it's yeah. like, some of them were just too obscure back in the day. I remember, uh, God, what was it, like, you know, you mentioned Gundam. I mean, Gundam is like, you know, you can find, you can easily find that now like whenever but mm -hmm. I remember back in the day hunting down those like subbed episodes was just like a nightmare because it's like how do I find this subbed <laughs> I want to see the uncut version <laughs> yeah I mean the first Gundam series I had ever seen was Gundam Wing because of, of Toonami which we had over here in the states um but it wasn't until I played um and this goes again like like I said I I I'm really in this 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 culture. I'm in into this form of media. Um, so, folks who've ever played uh, the series, it's uh, Dynasty War Dynasty Warriors Gundam. Um, but there's a specific entry called Dynasty Warriors Gundam Reborn, or I think its international title is Shin Muso Gundam, or something like that. 
it wasn't until I played that game that I realized just how many Gundam franchises there were. Because it's sort of like a multiverse story where, like, they bring in all of the protagonists to, like, fight this overwhelming threat sort of deal. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I didn't even – I've never heard of, like, half of these things. And, again, like you were saying, that's because they were released during this, like, 80s to maybe early 2000s block where they were only sort of – taking what they thought were going to be guaranteed hits, so something that was maybe a little bit more uh, obscure, didn't have a chance of getting an international release. Yeah, um, I remember, yeah, what was it, the original Gundam series? Like, I didn't I didn't get, a, get my hands on that until, like, years later, because it was just damn near impossible to find, like, the, the original, like, um, subbed version of that, because it just did not have a release at the time, and... And it's like, well, that sucked. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, and that series came out in 1979, and I don't think I saw it until like 2000 and like set 2000, like I want to say maybe five, 2004, something like that. And back then, like we only had like DVD quality, so you couldn't <laughs> have the, you know, you didn't have your fancy remasters where everything looks nice. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, it, it's it's crazy how far anime has come uh, since it since like the early days. I remember back then it was just a niche product that you could only find in conventions and tape trading and and like you know the weird section of your of your local like uh, DVD store. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I remember as a kid because I was such a Digimon fan. I remember being so shocked because it was a show that was on TV, so I just assumed that everyone like uh, around my age watched it most kids I went to school with like knew what it was but they didn't watch it consistently the way that I did um but I remember coming to school early one morning and there were some kids sitting in class and they were playing the original Digimon trading card game and I had never seen Digimon cards before and I was like whoa what the heck are those like I, I need that in my life right now and that like the local stores, like, I, I could find Pokemon cards, but I could never find Digimon cards. And so, like you're saying, you, you know, now you can go to Walmart, you can go to your local chain store, and there's a whole section with Yu-Gi-Oh cards and Digimon cards and Pokemon cards and all kinds of things. And it's just, like, readily available. But at that time, if you were a kid and you didn't have a parent that was going to sort of, I guess, feed your habit, you know, you were just out of luck. Oh yeah, especially considering like the early days of anime where it wasn't popular enough to warrant, you know, demand for this stuff. Like a lot of retailers just didn't bother with it. Like you had to go to like local stores that you know you only knew and and they were like shady and they're like, "Yeah, we we, we got your Pokémon cards." And they were like bootlegs and, and they were <laughs> awful and it's like but it's like that's how we could find the stuff back in the day because it wasn't readily available because like there was just not that much demand for it. It's like, you know, Pokemon cards, uh, what's that? Uh, we don't have that. <laughs> you know, go, go, go play something else. <laughs> <laughs> I was actually, I was just uh, sharing a story um, of when I was in elementary school and it was around the Egyptian god card era of Yu-Gi-Oh!, and at that time, those cards, there was not an official release for them. So if anyone had one, it was a bootleg card. But as a child, 
I didn't know that, right? And so I remember there was this kid who had come to school and he had like printed off a picture of, I think it was like Sly for the Sky Dragon. And he'd done a really good job of trimming the edges and like gluing it down um, to like a, an, another just generic card. And he even like surfaced the top and everything. Like it looked real. And he was showing all of us at lunch. And we were like, whoa, holy crap, you have an Egyptian god card. You're like the coolest person ever. And then something had happened where like the, the top of it started to peel off and you could see underneath that it was like a fake card. And that kid was like ostracized for the rest of our school existence. And it was just one of those things like during that time period where it was like if you were, a, I don't know, a faker, you know, a bootlegger and you got exposed, it was like the end of your, your lunch table career. I mean, uh, speaking of Digimon, how did you know you get involved in that whole franchise? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So with Digimon, um, I had well, we got to go back a little bit here. So around 2020, uh, Marissa Linty, uh, who is over at Sound Cadence, she had put out a call on Twitter, and she was like, "Hey, you know, I know we're in the height of the pandemic, so right now we are currently accepting submissions uh, for our, our talent roster." So I sent over my demo. She was like, wow, this is great. Like, you're on board. And I was like, awesome. So then I was able to start auditioning for Sound Cadence. Um, and I booked my first thing uh, for Sound Cadence probably about six months or so after that sort of initial uh, acceptance to the roster. And that was Dragon Ghost House Hunting. Um, and then after that, I did a, uh, a couple more bit things uh, for Sound Cadence. So I was sort of like in the mix with the, the Sound Cadence roster. Um, and Sound Cadence, for folks who don't know, uh, you know, they do a, a lot of uh, material, but they are often tasked with sort of like uh, third party sort of deals. Um, and so, you know, they, they they might record something through Sound Cadence, but then it'll actually show up on Crunchyroll. Um, so I think maybe when other studios get overwhelmed, you know, they task Sound Cadence because they know that they're going to do a great job with the product. Um, but anyway, so it was around... Oh, gosh. I want to say March or February of 2023. Yeah, March or February. Um, I had come home from work. And mind you, I, I still have a, a day job. I'm not in a position yet where voice acting pays the bills and it's my only thing that I do. So I do work part time. So I'd come home. Um, and I see this email on my computer for uh, Digimon the Movie Uncut. And I was like... Is this uh, like a fan project? Like, because I, I know that Sound Cadence works with like Screw Attack to do like Death Battle and, and all of that stuff. So I thought maybe this was some kind of fan thing that got, you know, official approval. And then I was reading through it and I was like, holy crap, no, this is like the real Digimon franchise. And I saw that, you know, they were casting uh, for some of the actors that had passed. And so, you know, I, I go through the list of characters and I'm. I'm looking and I'm thinking and I'm like, ah, I don't, I don't know if I should even audition for this. They probably want someone, you know, who's more seasoned. That's, you know, maybe more of a prominent voice actor, you know, because everyone's going to be trying to get in on Digimon. I, I can't imagine I'm even going to book this. So why should I even bother with it? And uh, so, you know, then I was sitting and uh, then I was like, you know what? No, 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 no. I love this franchise too, too, too much. I cannot let this opportunity pass through my fingers. So after, you know, a cut. I would say probably about an hour of being wishy-washy. I ran into the booth. 
I, I laid down my audition, uh, my audition for both Joe and uh, Greymon because the, both of those characters were voiced by Michael Lindsay. Uh, and so I figured, you know, if I'm going to audition for one, I might as well audition for both sort of deal. And funny enough, I actually felt way more confident about the Greymon audition than the Joe one because for folks who have heard the English dub, Joe has a very unique voice. Like Michael Lindsay as an, as an actor, as a performer, has a very unique voice um, that, that's really hard to replicate, especially when he's, he's sort of pitched down younger. Um, and so it's, he's so distinct. It's not like one of those things where you can just find someone walking down the street that could do a, a Joe impression sort of deal. So I was like, I don't know about this one, uh, so, <laughs> but I'm going to give it my best shot. So I send off my audition, uh, then a couple weeks later I get the email, and it's like, you know, they want to cast you as, as Joe. And at first I was like, oh, this, is, this has got to be a mistake. They've obviously emailed the wrong person. There must be another Eli on the talent roster. And so I read it like forward, backwards, side to side, like 20 different times. I was like, no, this is, this is really me. Holy crap. Like I actually book this role and so I'm bouncing all over the walls I'm so excited and I, I just could not believe that it was real um, and so that was how I had originally booked the part it's crazy to me that you know you just walk in one day and you just see this audition for something that I don't think anybody even knew could even happen because of yeah. <laughs> just just in general because for the longest time, everyone was just like, we, we've come to accept that, you know what, we'll never get to see the original three movies uncut, yeah. you know, subbed, much less dubbed, but sound, uh, no, what was it, uh, Sound Cadence found a way, I guess. <laughs> yeah, Sound Cadence and Discotech, they pulled it off. And apparently, you know, I didn't even know all of this while I was recording in the process, um, but some of the folks at Sound Cadence, you know, or rather some of the folks at Discotech have been sharing some more behind the scenes stuff um, on social media. But apparently this is a project that's had been in the work for, I want to say, if I remember correctly, they said like four or five years they had been trying to put this together behind the scenes. And it has, uh, it was obviously kept under the most tightest lock and key because, I hadn't even heard a slight inkling of anything like this uh, until obviously I got the audition myself. And and it's not only the fact that, you know, it's a it's like the original movie's uncut, but the fact that they got the original cast back is just insane to me. It's like holy crap, Laura Laura Jill Miller's back after a decade of being away from this franchise. It's like, oh, I did not even think that that was ever going to happen because, you know, she's a huge, you know, L.A. actress and she doesn't yeah. do a lot of anime these days. So to have her come back is just, oh, my goodness. I, I just like, I don't even know how to process that, to be quite honest. And, it, and for me, it was such an honor, you know, to be able to be in a project with these voices that I had listened to throughout my childhood, you know. I had Digimon everything, My one of my first video games. I think it actually might have been the first video game that I had ever gotten, like, for myself that I'd asked for my parents bought for me was Digimon World. Uh, then Digimon Rumble Arena, like, the PlayStation 1 era of Digimon games was amazing. And so I was all in on Digimon, the show, the games, the, the collectibles. And, and it, it really meant a lot to me, especially Digimon the movie. So not to get, you know, too sappy and, and emotional here, but when I was a kid, um, you know, growing up, my parents, their relationship became pretty tumultuous very early in my life. 
And so I would say that for me, I always, when I, like around my teen years, I always looked back on those, those childhood memories because that's when I remember us sort of being together like as a family unit. And it wasn't so adversarial, I should say. Um, and Digimon the movie was the last movie that we ever went to go see as a family. And so when I think back to that movie, I also associate it with like, it was really the last time that I remember my family being a family. And then after that, you know, things sort of sort of fell apart for me. So it was, it was very emotional because Digimon the movie is an actual like foundational check mark in my life. And so then to now be able to be a part of that is it yeah, it's it's one of the most surreal and, and magical things that I could have ever asked for. Again, I, I I had no idea that this would ever happen. I I don't think anybody within the fandom knew that this something like this could happen because again Telway is one of those companies that is notoriously difficult to work with, so mm. getting anything you know with them off the ground is just damn near impossible and sometimes you just wonder like will we ever get to see an uncut you know english dub of digimon in some capacity because the show is heavily edited for kids and you know yeah and we'll never get to see unfortunately i don't think we'll ever get to see like the full series getting an english dub but the fact that we're getting yeah, the movies, no, no, <laughs> but the fact that we're getting the movies uncut for the first time, you know, remastered with the original cast back is just, oh my goodness. Yeah, it's it's one of those things that feels like a, a once in a lifetime like lottery ticket, like one in a billion, one in a million chance. I actually remember telling one of my buddies, you know, uh, after we'd made the announcement, and he was like. Do you realize that the statistical odds of you being in Digimon, like getting this part in particular, he's like, it's got to be more than winning the lottery. He's like, it's got to be like one in a billion plus because he's like, just think about it right now. Like if you had a kid and your kid's like sitting on the couch watching whatever mainstream anime that's airing on TV at the time, let's say it's it's Boruto or, or Bleach or something like that. And then your kid is like, hey, you know, when I grow up in 20 years, I'm going to voice that character on the screen. You would laugh and giggle and be like, the odds of that happening are just so, so low. But then it actually happened to me, and I still feel like I'm dreaming. And what's even more um, amazing is the fact that anyone who knows uh, Lenti knows that they're a huge Digimon fan, and they've been, <laughs> like, campaigning to get involved in any official Digimon product. So yeah. the fact that... The fact that they're even like directing these movies is just like, oh, oh, Lenti, like you, 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 you did it, you, you freaking did it. Well, there could not have been a, a better person to direct the project because I remember when I, I came in to record. So mind you, I'm a Turbo Digimon fan, right? And I'm sharing, you know, the story of, of what Digimon the movie means to me. So I'm going there and I'm trying to play it cool. I'm like. You're a professional. You can't like super duper nerd out. You, you got to play it cool. So I'm in the booth. I'm trying to play it cool. Um, but I'm so nervous. I've got this like pit in my stomach because, mind you, so it's the first time I'd ever recorded in studio. It's the first time I'd ever worked on a union project. It was uh, my first time ever doing a voice match. And it was my first time ever, obviously, working on Digimon. Oh, and then uh, doing a movie. Um, so it was a lot of first. 
Uh, and so I was trying to play it cool, but I was just so, so, so nervous. And Marissa really helped put my mind at ease and sort of just helped reassure me of like, we cast you for a reason. It's because we know that you can do this. You'll be fine. Trust the direction. Um, and so, yeah, without her, you know, sitting in that director chair, I don't know that the product uh, that we put together would have, would have been the same. Uh, or rather, I should say, I, I know that it wouldn't have been the same. Not to say that it wouldn't have been good, but I, I don't think that it would have been the amazing quality uh, that we put together. Um, and, you know, funny enough, I actually haven't gotten to see the full project myself yet, um, but just from the little bits um, that I have gotten to see, like, I, I know that it's something really, really special. Yeah, man, I can't wait to see um, all these movies full for the first time in glorious HD. <laughs> yeah, yeah Discotech, they, they do this thing that's called astro-resing. I'm not really sure how that, that process works or what that means exactly, um, but it, like, totally ups the, the picture quality um, because I remember I was listening to uh, With the Will pod, podcast, um, and the person that runs With the Will is also someone that works at Discotech. Uh, and he was, his name is Mark, and he was instrumental in helping put all of this together. Um, but he talked about that when they actually got the original, I guess what you would call um, files or the original movie prints, uh, whatever you would, you would say, um, from the American side, uh, the quality was, was, not, was not it. Uh, I guess it just hadn't been kept up well or <laughs> whatever the, the reason was. So I think they said they had to get the, the Japanese ones, um, and those were in better shape, but they still had to sort of up-res those um, to get them up to the quality that they were looking for. Um, and they had to do some really interesting things. Uh, and I would encourage folks, if you've never listened to With the Wheel, With the Will podcast, if you're a Digimon fan, I encourage you to check it out. Um, but they talked about doing some really interesting things where there's like, Moments where there's, say, credits on the screen in the English version or there's credits on the screen in the Japanese version that, that isn't in the other version. So when you're doing an English dub of the Japanese scenes, if there's you know credits there or something like that, they had to do like interlacing where they had to take like the, the clean version to rip the subtitles off the screen and put in the, the other things so that you, know, you can have the person that needed to be talking during that point, talking during that point, um, or having music playing or X, Y, and Z, or whatever it was. So they, they, they really went above and beyond to give people the best experience that they possibly could um, from top to bottom. And yeah, I'm, I'm really excited for the fans to check it out. Because I remember back in the day when I found out that the original Digimon movie was just like three movies spliced together. I'm like, okay, who do I talk to to find like the original movies and like <laughs> trying to find those movies online back in like the early 2000s? Oh my gosh. Oh god. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that would have been nearly impossible like uh, such a Herculean task. Yeah, I mean it was like I you had to go through like different forms be like okay, who do I talk to about this? I I got a copy. Okay, can you post screenshots? And then they post <laughs> screenshots, and I'm like, "Yeah, this is like a this is like a VHS screen cap of the of the uh, what was it the movie? I want the original one." And it's like, "Oh well, I don't have the original ones." And then why are you wasting my time? <laughs> <laughs> you know, with, with funny talking about the the subtitle version of those movies. Um, so in my preparation, oh, I guess that'd be maybe a fun thing to talk about for folks that are listening. So in my preparation for playing Joe, 
I studied everything that I could find about the original actor, Michael Lindsay. Um, I watched every interview clip with him. I watched every Joe-related thing that I could find that he'd ever done. Obviously, I've seen Digimon the series multiple times, so I'm familiar with that. But but any other maybe obscure thing, if he did something in a video game that I didn't know about, I tried to find. And so I found everything that I could, every interview, X, Y, and Z, right? Um, And then I studied all of his lines from the original movie. You know, beat for beat, I was like mimicking him with the the pacing, the cadence, and everything, really trying to just nail down my my Joe and my Joe impersonation, I guess you could say, as best as I could, because uh, I really wanted to have an authentic Joe voice. Because uh, my normal speaking voice isn't like super Joe esque, um, so it definitely takes some maneuvering for me to get that that sound. Um, but when I was studying, uh, I also found the subtitled versions of those three movies, and I watched them uh, because I wanted to see what the Joe lines were. Like, what were things that he said that I might need to be prepared for? Because, again, I wanted to go in 100% to this session. But what was so funny was that I had gotten so, like, married to my delivery of these lines that I was like, I know exactly what we're going to do as soon as we get in there. And so then as soon as I get in there, I look at the script, the lines were like slightly modified and different. And my brain was like short circuiting. It was like, this isn't what we practiced. Ah! <laughs> Why'd you change it? Why are you ruining it? <laughs> <laughs> well, it wasn't so much even, I would say ruining. It was just like, it was just not, beat for beat the exact same so maybe it's like one or two words are are different maybe there's a a contraction or something but like i'm talking like i was like a robot like with the way that i was doing these lines and so just coming in and even that slight difference i was like oh no ah what am i gonna do but it was fine marissa walked me through it and again we were able to really pull out a, a good joe performance which was really fun there were some lines though that were the exact same as the ones that I practiced, and uh, that that was awesome because you know those were like one take and we were done. Uh, so I was like, Phew, "All right, nailed it down." Yeah, man, you got to be prepared because even if you do watch the subbed ver- version first to get a handle of what the character is, chances are most of those lines are going to be changed anyway because they don't have the time to, to you know match the lip flaps. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they don't fit in the actual <laughs> timing on the screen. So, you know, whenever I ask people, like, you know, do you watch the the stuff ahead of time? They're like, yeah, sure, but but that does not mean that, you know, you're going to know the lines ahead of time because, again, they have to change a lot of stuff because sometimes it just does not fit. <laughs> yeah, you know, it was funny. I actually just had this experience earlier this week. Uh, so I was up at Crunchyroll, uh, and I was recording some... Uh, background walla bits uh, for the series. It's, uh, I don't want to get this wrong. It's Sacrificial Princess in Beast and the Beast Castle. Oh, wait, no. Sacrificial Princess and the King of Beast. Um, and so I was up there, I was recording for it. And so I'm someone, I do as much prep work as I physically can, whether I am going to be a, a, a a more prominent character if I had the opportunity to be a lead character or if I'm going to just be doing background bits I prepare for all of them with the same level of intensity and try to learn as much as I can about every single role um, so I had watched the episode um, and I had identified what all the walla bits could potentially be um, and so I had practiced the the lines and I was like okay all right like I'm ready to go so I go into the session 
And uh, the line was the exact same as what I had practiced. Um, but our director, <laughs> John, was like, we do sort of creaturey sounds for all of our wallabits. He's like, so can you make your character sound like a, a, a lizard? And I was like, oh, <laughs> oh, okay. You know, and so that was different because it's like, again, even if the line's the exact same, there might be some other nuance that you didn't prepare for. So, you know, I, I gave my lizard read and he was like, can you make him sound more... Uh, more courtly and so then I gave you know my my regal lizard read you know and so even though I knew what the line was there was no way I was going to know that I had to be a regal lizard before I went into the session I mean sometimes you don't even know what you're going in for sometimes it's like you know yeah it's just going to be walla oh no uh this this character has a specific way of talking in this (laughs) scene and we kind of need you to you know replicate that okay cool yeah, one of the people I feel like has a hilarious sort of experience with that is, uh, again, I watch every voice actor panel interview that I, I possibly can. Since I've started, and I still do that to this day because I, I try to keep up with what's going on, right? Because I'm, I'm fascinated by the people, so it doesn't feel like work for me, but I just I like getting all these little stories and things. Um, Brian Donovan, who does the voice of Rock Lee, you know, he talks about how doing that character... You know, you might read through the lines and think like, oh, you know, this is how I'm going to give the delivery. But Rock Lee in English, he doesn't use any contractions. So Rock Lee has to like say every single word and he can't like shorten anything. You know, he couldn't, he can't say can't or couldn't. He has to say could not, cannot. And to have to do that for however long he's been Rock Lee, probably a, a decade now, I just think has got to have been one of the most challenging things to overcome. Because in our everyday speech, we contract language all the time. And to, to get out of that habit, I, I know had to be like mental gymnastics. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, tra- training your brain to unlearn something is one of the hardest things a human being can do because... Once you, you get used to, to something, it just becomes like natural to you. Yeah. And so when you like tell yourself, oh no, I got to stop doing that. Like, how do you do that? Like, it's like, I, I can't, you know, breaking the morning routine. It's like, how do I do that? Like, how do I break this morning routine that I've been doing for like 20 years? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, you know, I, I would say to my point for folks who are preparing for a role, you know, maybe don't do what I did, like what I was preparing for Joe, right? Because you don't want to train your brain to specifically just do one thing. Um, you want to allow yourself that ability to be flexible in the booth. So don't get so married to the delivery that you might have practiced. And even in, in voiceover, we don't really get that much prep time anyway. Um, so I guess most people probably wouldn't fall into that trap. But if you're someone like me that fixates on things, um, I would encourage you to, again, familiarize, familiarize yourself to an extent um, but you don't necessarily need to hard ingrain it into your brain because you want to be flexible in the booth because you never know what the changes might be. Yeah, you kind of need to be flexible. You can't just be like, oh, I just watched I just watched the episode last night. I know what the lines are going to be. And you go in there and it's like totally different lines because it's like, yeah, sure. No, duh. They're, they're, they're different lines because they have to, you know, change them because sometimes you just don't have – X amount of seconds to, to fit all that in. Yeah, and I also think about that with 
you know, maybe vocal pitch or cadence or, or something to that extent. Um, there are some dub performances that are nothing like the original Japanese voice, but it actually works really, really well in English that you're just like, whoa, e even though this doesn't necessarily match the same pitch as the original performance, I can't see this English voice being any other way. Um, and again, if you were so married to what you had seen uh, in the original Japanese, some performers might not have been able to bring out those iconic performances uh, that we know and love to this day. Uh, yeah, uh, I think uh, the thing people fail to understand is that when people are dubbing something, they're giving their own unique take on it. It's not... Mm -hmm. You know, they're not just, they're not sound alikes. They're not brought in there to be like, oh, the, the Japanese say you did this sound like them. No, it's yeah. like, you know, you have to do your own thing, but stay true to the character. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I mean, that's why they hire you, right? Like if, if there wasn't that quality to it, why would we even dub anything? We would just put everything out in subtitles, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, it's not... You know, it's it's not one of those it's not like one of those cases where you can just say, Well, I, I don't wanna, you know, watch anything that's dubbed because uh what was it? Uh they, they it ruins the, the whole experience or what have you. <laughs> but I'm like you know, some some people can't watch subs, you know, some people just, you know, have dyslexia and you know, they can't, you know, read subtitles that fast yeah. and Sometimes, you know, sometimes uh, dubs are much easier to, to, get, to get a handle on, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I think about how many of us stateside love just, we love anime. We love everything about it. And you can say what you want about those sort of four kids era dubs of things like Yu-Gi-Oh! and Pokemon. But if those did not exist... The chances of you knowing and being exposed to anime are like astronomically lower because you wouldn't have seen it on cable television. So most people would have never been exposed to it in any capacity because most people weren't just like going out of their way to the local hobby store or, you know, indie store uh, to find these sorts of things or, or their parents weren't necessarily into it. Um, so I think to be like a, a late game sub purist later in life when as a child the only way you got exposed to anime was through dubs has always been kind of funny to me oh yeah no i think that's what's hilarious about this is like a lot of people who just hate you know dubs nowadays probably grew up watching dragon ball z on toonami <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so like how else would you have ever learned about it and one of the things that's great now is the quality of dubs has improved dramatically across the board obviously there's some instances where Things just don't come out the best. Um, they don't come out ideally. Um, but across the board, the quality has improved. And it's one. I think part of the reason for it is it's taken a lot more seriously now than it used to be. But also, um, I'm going to use a sports reference here for for folks. So don't don't tune out. Please please <laughs> stay on board with me here. Uh, but uh, my fiance and I like we are huge. Uh, mixed martial arts fans. Uh, we love watching MMA. We love watching the UFC. Um, and one of the things they talk about is how these new generation uh, of fighters, they come in with all of the, the skill sets. They've, they've mastered all of the different martial arts. Well, not mastered, but they come in with all of the skill sets. Whereas, you know, 10, 15 years ago, 
people came in with just one skill set because they just trained for their one sport and happened to do MMA, whereas like now people specifically train for mixed martial arts. And you're seeing that happen with dubbing. You see people who specifically train to do anime, people who specifically train to do voiceover, whereas a lot of folks who originally did voiceover were folks who were theater actors, you know, folks who were on-camera actors and, and came to voiceover later. It wasn't what they set out to do. Um, and so that's why I think that you're, you're seeing sort of like these newbies will come in and you're like, whoa, like you've only been doing this for a year or two years and you're picking it up really fast. It's like, well, I specifically trained to do this thing. Um, so my learning curve is going to be much shorter than someone who has to sort of learn the world of anime and learn the world of dubbing. Whereas like, this is the thing that I trained to do. Yeah, I mean, you know, especially going to, you know, going using your um, MMA example, I'm thinking about like a lot of the fighters that used to be popular during the early days of the UFC, like, you know, Ken Shamrock, you know, Chuck Liddell, you know, these guys, you know, they, they weren't like, you know, you look at, you know, people who are only familiar with like the newer guys, you know, look at those, look at all those old fights and be like, oh, this is not exciting. It's just like two guys rolling around on the ground, but it's like. That's what they all knew how to do, man. You know, Shamrock does not know how to, you know, like do all that. He wasn't trained in that specific uh, martial art that, you know, your favorite fighter is, is um, trained in. So, of course, he's not going to know yeah. how to do do all that stuff that, you know, all these other guys are doing. Same thing with like um, Chuck Liddell, you know, he, he did not know how to do a lot of that, do a lot of the stuff that all these younger guys are doing. And that's fine. You know, it's totally different same thing with with anime dubs in general now because back then you know it wasn't taken seriously it was just like something that was just hey you know we need this done cheaply because it's it almost had a very um like b-movie quality to it where it just it sounds like <laughs> just just hastily put hastily put together like on the fly because like ah, like who cares about this stuff but you know it's just like you know and that's why and that's why like a lot of early anime dubs just weren't very good because a lot of people you know who are tasked with localizing this stuff just did not care for the material or did not care for for um for what they were making and it, it started this whole this whole genre of like subs versus dubs because you know the dubs were just so terrible back in those days that everyone had just assumed like, oh, well, if, if, if they, you know, dubs are ruining subs when that wasn't the case, you know, there were, you know, diamonds in the rough, obviously, but you know, it, it, that's that negative stigma has unfortunately stayed to this day because, you know, and that's just how it is. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, there'll always probably be some, some section of that, um, but to your, your, the point that you mentioned earlier about like anime dubs being taken so much more seriously, I was having this, this thought the other day, cause I don't know if you've seen, there's this advertising campaign, uh, currently going around with McDonald's. I'm not sure if they're doing it internationally, um, but I know they're doing it here in the States. Um, and in that they've got like all of the different times that McDonald's has been like referenced in pop culture. And they have a scene from like the devil is a part-timer in there. And I was like, how far we have come that, like, McDonald's in America is advertising with an anime. <laughs> oh, man, I remember back in the day uh, during the Code Geass, uh, <laughs> when Code Geass was still around, um, 
the Japanese Pizza Hut had a tie-in with them. Whoa! But, but because the dub didn't, all those all those Pizza Hut signs had to be changed to Pizza Butt or something like that. And it was just <laughs> really stupid. But it's like, well, that's what you get for like putting in an advertising deal and uh, you know not not thinking it through. <laughs> oh no, that's so hilarious. <laughs> No, Google that. It's real. Uh, Google code Gias uh, Pizza Hut, and you'll find a lot of hilarity <laughs> when it comes to <laughs> when it comes to the localizers trying to to work around it. Because like, yeah, we don't, you know, we can't uh, mention the brand name because we're not sponsored by them in the states. <laughs> you see, this is why I love getting to talk to other people who are fans of the genre because it's like you you have your own fan knowledge and fan experience. But you don't know everything. And so when you get to talk to somebody else that has had their own unique experience and you can kind of compare and share notes, like I would have never known that that was a thing that, that had happened. And now it's so funny that I'm going to go check that out. Um, and that's why I think it's so great when folks in the community can come together where it be fans, performers. I mean, the performers are fans, but you get what I'm saying. Like the different aspects of, of the genre, we can all come together and talk. I think it just makes for some wonderful interactions. Yeah, and I think that's, the beauty of conventions is just like just meeting people and just having, you know, just talking to them about, you know, either the craft or a character that they voiced. I mean, it's not like, it's not like back in the day where, you know, anime dubbing was just seen as like this thing that was like totally embarrassing. And that's why like nobody ever talked about it. Now, now you're starting to see more um, voice actors show up to these conventions because they're like, yeah, there's a market for it. Yeah. I mean, I, I think about when the, the pandemic hit, I felt like a lot of uh, voice actors got hit really hard because conventions were so much of their routine. It's like what they did. You know, when they weren't performing, they were on the road. They were going to conventions. And to then lose that, that piece of that connection with the fans, I felt like really weighed on people. <laughs> and that's why I'm so fortunate that we're in a place now that, you know, with vaccinations and masks, you know, we can safely still do these conventions and inter interact and engage with each other uh, because I, I felt like there was a disconnect uh, that had happened during the pandemic. I mean, obviously, there's a disconnect across the entire world, uh, but specifically, you know, to my industry, uh, I, I feel like there was something that was lost there that has now started to come back, which is really special. Oh, yeah. I mean, I love just going to conventions and just talking to people. And it doesn't even matter. Like, sometimes it's like, you see people show up. So, to you, see, you see people show up to conventions, and their lines aren't that long. But it's like that's pretty cool that you're even here to begin with, because it's like, you know, so and so might not be interested in it, but I'm interested in it. So you know, like sometimes, sometimes people will just show up to 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 lines just to ask like who the hell a <laughs> <the> person is. <laughs> uh, I have yet to um, have the experience of, of, of being a guest at a convention. But I am sure I'll probably <laughs> have some of that myself. I'm like, what do you do? Who are you? Uh, but, you know, I, I'm sure it'll be an a, a honor and a pleasure just to, to be invited. One of the things I, I was curious about, so the conventions that you go to, are they actually in Kuwait or are you traveling to go to these events? Uh, we did have like a, a convention scene that, you know, was unfortunately put on hold during the pandemic and we're slowly getting back to that, but it's like still a work in progress. I don't think we'll ever be like, I don't think we'll ever go back to like post pandemic 
conventions where there were like mm-hmm. these big events and what have you. Like we're still we're still trying to figure it out. But like we're booking bigger guests, but the problem here is that, you know, voice actors aren't that aren't that in demand, so you just kind of get like a lot of on-camera actors and stuff like that. You know, from yeah. shows that I don't I don't even watch, so it's like, okay, so like this is obviously not for me. <laughs> <laughs> so well, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. You know, we can we can get some more folks out there. Yeah, the, the convention scene is a a very interesting thing, and, uh, and that's where I watch a lot. You know, a lot of interviews and panels. You know, there are things that happen at conventions, um, and you know, you get to hear all these little stories again, like we, we were saying earlier, um, that folks these experiences that they've had in the booth, and that's what I, I think about is like anytime I'm recording something whether it's a good experience or a challenging experience, I'm like, the worst case scenario, this is just a good story that I get to share with somebody. Like, uh, oh, here's a funny one. Um, so the most challenging, I would even maybe go so far as to say maybe the only negative experience I've ever had recording in the booth, I won't say what the brand was for, but my line was to literally go, mm, mm, mm. Because I was supposed to be eating something and it was supposed to be delicious, right? Just like, mm, 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 very simple. And I kid you not, I had to do like 60 plus takes. And the director was just like, I don't understand like why you aren't getting this. Just, he's like, do it like this. And I was like, I feel like I'm doing exactly what you're saying to me. And I remember telling, you know, my friends and stuff afterwards and they were like, but haven't you done, like, these other things? And it was, like, effortless and yada, yada, yada. And I was like, yeah, but I guess maybe my mm-mm-mm is just so terrible. <laughs> and, you know, that's, like, a story that I, I get to share with people now because that question comes up of, like, what's the most challenging role you've ever had? For me, it was mm-mm-mm. So... <laughs> Uh, that's that's actually pretty. Uh, uh, I think that's my favorite answer so far to that question because I, I you know, I, yeah, because I know that you listen to a lot of um, to some episodes I did. So, yeah. You know, thank you for preparing for you know <laughs> answering that question. <laughs> I usually and I usually ask people like, what well, out of all the stuff you've done, which one was the most challenging or the toughest? And and apparently for you, it's like just go. It's it's going <laughs> for a, for a commercial. <laughs> yeah, apparently I just suck at sounding like I'm enjoying food. So. <laughs> Uh, I don't believe it. <laughs> I don't understand. <laughs> what are you not getting? You're supposed to be hungry. <laughs> I think that was one of those instances where, you know, you're working with a director who just is trying to ensure job security. <laughs> it's like this Kubrick perfectionist <laughs> walking in on set. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, we're not making a commercial. We're making art. Yeah, we're making art. <laughs> but but then you know I think about like how I've done uh, like a I've I've done a commercial for uh, Gardasil, which is a, a vaccine for human papillomavirus, and it was like a super precise like multi-page long with all of these medical pronunciations, and I ran through that thing like a hot knife through butter, and I was and I, that was like I did that one right after I had done the mm mm mm, and I was like okay. Clearly, it wasn't me. It wasn't a me problem. 
It's like, I can do all this other stuff, but I don't understand, like, you know, why I can't, why I'm not nailing this. Is it me? No, it's, of course it's not me. It's just like the material just wasn't that very good <laughs> to begin with. <laughs> or sound quality, who knows? But yeah, you know, you're not going to always hit every single one of them out of the park on the first take or the second take. You know, with my commercial spots, I do pride myself on, you know, within one to two takes, I want to make sure that they have the entire script and it's something serviceable. And then the rest of the session, we're just playing. Let's explore, you know, let's try this, let's do this, let's try that. Like I, I did a commercial. Um, so for folks that, that aren't familiar, obviously, with my work, uh, especially on the commercial side, because like, why would you would be? Um, uh, my commercial career has mostly actually taken place in Canada. Uh, my agency is based in Toronto. So I do a lot of work on the Canadian side, um, not really so much here in the States, which is ironic because I live here. Um, but so I do a lot of work uh, up in Canada. And I got to do this spot for uh, the Ontario Lottery and Gaming Commission. And they were doing like a, a lottery commercial where it was almost sort of like a Jack and the Beanstalk type of thing where they had this lottery ticket and it like continues to grow and expand and get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And it was like an animated spot. So it was actually kind of like a character role to an extent. So this giant lottery ticket's growing, right? And as it gets bigger, it like passes people who are like mountain climbers and then it, then it passes like certain animals and then like gets up in the sky and there's like birds and then, you know, it gets to the top and I'm playing like this giant, like Jack and Beanstalk giant, like Yeti-esque type of character. Um, and so we do the takes, and my line was to just say huge. I was like, huge. Um, and so I was, try I was trying to go as deep as I could and, and say huge, right? And so as I'm doing it, um, our director is like, oh my gosh, that's great. That that's perfect. Um, and she said, let's just play around. And uh, at, at some point, I did a take where I kind of, like, did it a little, like, sing-songy. I was like, huge. And mind you, I'm not a singer. And I don't know anything about singing. But she was like, oh, my gosh, that's really funny. Like, let's, let's nail in on that. And so she was, like, giving me all of these, like, musical terms and things. And I was like, I don't know what any of those words are that you're saying. Uh, which she thought was so hilarious. And, like, the whole production team started, like, cracking up and laughing and stuff. Um, but through that process, you know, we got something really special and really fun to come out of it. And if... You know, we were pressed for time because, you know, I hadn't been able to nail in the first couple of takes. I don't think that we would have gotten to that place where we got to do something really fun um, at the end of it. So that's why I pride myself on trying to be like, give them what they want as quickly as they can so that you have time to play at the end. That's actually great advice. I never thought of it that way because sometimes I've heard stories of people going in and giving them something different, but I've never heard of like, Okay, give them what they want as quick as you can so you can play at the end. That's pretty cool. Yeah, because, I mean, at the end of the day, you want to give them what they asked for. Um, and if you can do that fast enough, because, I mean, like, when you get booked for a commercial session, if it's two hours and you knock it out in 15 minutes, that's great. You know, that's fun. Um, and that everyone's happy across the board. But if it's a more of a creative thing, it's not just like a – you know, you're reading for a, a car commercial or an insurance company where it might be like very like by the book. If they're trying to do something more creative, like they're not really sure we've got this vision. We want it to be more character-esque. You know, they, they want the play. They want the improv. And so you want to make sure that you allot time for that. Um, 
with your with your professionalism, with your performance on the front end? I mean, obviously, you, you want to give, you know, the best performance you can, uh, but also, like, make sure that the client is satisfied, because if they're not satisfied, then, oh boy, something's wrong. Yeah, I, I mean, because at the end of the day, that's the whole whole reason you're there, right, is to, is to do what they asked. Um, and, you know, you've talked to so many different guests, and, you know, people have shared their stories. Um, but fans, again, as a reminder, like, if you hear something in a show or a movie or in a commercial and sometimes you scratch your head like why did they do it like that it's not always necessarily that the actor was like this is what i'm going to do very rarely is it the actor making that decision oh actually i would say almost never (laughs) is it the actor making that decision you know that's direction that they received that they were told like do it like this and that's them trying to meet that direction to the best of their ability Oh yeah, like that's why whenever I I um, listen to like a video game, uh, like a video game performance, and a line doesn't doesn't like sit right with me, I'm like, okay, that's the take they went with. Uh, they went with because when it comes to video games, they'll have you do like multiple takes of the same line, and they'll pick pick the one that you know th- that they like the best, and the actor has no control over it. So if they pick the one that people didn't like, then oh well. <laughs> yeah. So I had this experience. Um, so I was recently in a game that just came out called uh, Double Dragon Gaiden: Rise of the Dragons, um, and I play one of the villains. I play this character named Anubis, and so I was really excited um, to you know show my friend, show my fiance, and I was like, "Hey, here's this character that I'm in this video game, like that we can literally physically go buy at the store. Like, ah, how cool is that?" And so we get home and we're playing it, and she's like so excited to like hear my lines and stuff. And um, she was like, that was so fast. She was like, that, that, that's it? And I was like, yeah, well, I mean, I did do some takes that were like a little like more extended and performative, but, you know, it's a video game. I, I guess they're just, they're, they're trying to like match the speed of the flow of the game itself because they don't want like you to be doing this high speed action packed game and then you come up to the boss and then it just like gives you whiplash because they're giving like this long exaggerated villain speech it's not a rpg it's a it's an action side scroller you know so they have to make sure that the performances are matching the speed of the game itself um so it's like yeah so unfortunately you didn't get to hear me talk very long but i was like but that's me um but as we were beating my character up we did get to hear a lot of my grunts so that was enjoyable (laughs) So I take it you don't mind uh, listening to yourself when you're uh, watching or playing any of the stuff you've worked on? No, no, no. I know that there's a lot of people who are like, oh my gosh, I hate listening to my own voice. Um, I don't like watching my things that I've done. But for me, no, I, I definitely will check out everything that I've very accustomed to hearing myself talk. <laughs> uh, so I have a YouTube channel where uh, this is the super turbo nerd in me. Uh, I have a YouTube channel where I, I essentially do Kingdom Hearts fan fiction that I narrate, uh, that I've written myself. Um, and the videos are like anywhere from like 30 minutes to an hour long, right? And you know this as someone that edits podcasts. When you're editing, you have to hear yourself talk over and over and over and over and over again. So you just get so accustomed to it that it doesn't really bother you that much. Or as I think maybe some performers, 
they don't necessarily have to spend that much time hearing their own voice. Uh, yes, as a voice actor, you're going to hear yourself a lot when you're sort of engineering yourself for auditions. But there was a time period where people didn't have to self-engineer their auditions. You know, they just went into the studio and recorded. So they didn't actually have to hear themselves talk because the auditions were in person. Whereas now, you know, we do a lot of that stuff from home. So you are getting exposed to your own voice more. Uh, but I think with that exposure, it becomes just less and less strange. There's definitely extent uh, of me when I do listen to myself on a screen, like in, in a product, that I'm like, oh, wow. It feels like it kind of like sticks out. Like, does my voice like really belong? Uh, but I think everyone is always going to maybe sort of feel that to an extent. But it's never like, oh, my gosh, I can't I can't watch. I can't listen. It's just like, oh, is that like, does that fit? You know, am I, and I start critiquing my performance. Oh, no. I, I went through that period where I could not stand listening to myself talk about anything. So I would just, <laughs> like, not have my voice be recorded for anything. Because it's like, I, I just did not like the way I sounded. And after years of doing a podcast and having to edit them, ed- edit these episodes and listen to myself and, you know, make sure that... um you know, just make sure that it comes out, you know, okay-ish or, or the best that I can. It it just um, it just doesn't bother me anymore. I'm just like, okay, cool. Sometimes I'll even go back and listen to some of my favorite episodes because I'm like, you know, yeah, yeah that episode was pretty cool. But, you know, uh, but uh, I understand uh, why people, why some people uh, don't like listening to themselves. Yeah, I, I totally get that as well. I can I can definitely see where that standpoint comes from for sure. You know, because you want to you want to do it and then put it out of your mind. Um, and I think that comes, you know, from true blue performers. You know, it, it, I I think I really enjoy the longevity aspect of it. Like everything that I do, I hope that you know, years from now. I'm in things where I can show my children and they can be like, oh, that's my dad, you know. I, I want things that I, I can share with my family, things that people can look at years from now because I, I want to leave a mark. I want to leave an imprint to some extent. Um, and so for me, that's why I don't I don't think I necessarily mind as much because I'm, I'm thinking about I, w- I want I want to experience this for as long as I can because, you know, life is fleeting. We're not going to be around forever. And so... I want to just enjoy the things that I've done and, and look back at my highlight reel, I guess, more or less one day. Oh, yeah. I think like the biggest takeaway from the past uh, three years now is that life is short and that's and then um, you have to make the best uh, moments count, honestly. Yeah, yeah, especially so, you know, as we're, we're still dealing with the effects of COVID and all of the, the loss of life that happened during the, the height of the pandemic itself. And, and people realize, like, even when you're young, you know, you're not invincible. Um, nothing is guaranteed. Uh, and I, I just hope that people take that. I'm not saying go out and live recklessly. Don't, don't, don't do that. But I'm saying I hope that people take that to heart and it gives them a little bit more of that courage to go out and maybe try some of the things that they were on the fence. Like, can I do this? Do I have the skills? Do I have the ability? Is it worth it? shoot your shot, you know, like you don't know how much time you have left. So, so give it a shot again. Don't, don't go into poverty and, you know, ruin your family's life savings or anything like that, but go chase those dreams within reason. Yeah. I mean, it's important to, you know, chase your dreams, but make sure that, you know, you don't end up going broke because of it. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, you definitely want to you want to take care of, you know, those needs. I actually went through a uh, a point in my life. Uh this was right after college um when I had well actually no, it was it was a year out of college after I had just finished my like first full-time job. Um, and it was in my transition phase of like moving from North Carolina to Virginia down to Texas where I, I reside now, um, but I, I wasn't working, and I just I just didn't have the the motivation. I, I was going through like a really dark place uh, in my life, and one of the shows that really pulled me out of that was My Hero Academia. Um, I had gotten I had seen a trailer for it, and I was like hooked. You know, I wanted to watch it. And, you know, talking about going broke, here I was, I was broke as could be. Luckily, I had paid up my rent, um, and I had a place to stay, but, like, no food in my belly, like, like old crackers in the pantry type of deal. And, you know, I was, like, down to my last whatever scra- scrapings of cash, um, and instead of using that money to, like... I don't know, get groceries or something. Uh, I bought the second season of My Hero Academia and watched it. Because for me, the motivation that it gave me to get up and go out there and and live life was worth more than the whatever immediate gratification I was going to get from eating, which sounds crazy, but like that's the place that, that I was at. So I wouldn't recommend going to that extreme for chasing your dreams. Um, but for me, like that really jump started and really motivated me to sort of go all in on the voice acting dream. And that's the power of media that I think a lot of people underestimate is that it can get you through the worst periods of your life and and I just I feel like people just kind of underestimate that. They just look at that and be like, oh, it's just an anime or oh, it's just a TV show or it's just this oh, it's just that. But no, it's like, you know, going through tough times is obviously, you know, different for everybody. So every and everyone has a different way of coping. But I'm someone who, you know, copes with, you know, seeking out shows that I used to watch as a kid or shows that I'm into or anything to, you know, to get my mind off of, you know, the insanity that's currently going on <laughs> in the world. And, you know, it helps. It really does. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying like other stuff doesn't help, but, you know, for me, you know, finding that comfort zone and just being like, you know, even if it's something that I've watched like a billion times and I know by heart, I'm like, I'll just keep it on in the background, you know, just to, you know, have that, uh, have that sound around, you know? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I totally get that. And the thing that I try to express to folks is when they say things like, oh, it's just anime, or oh, it's just a TV show, or oh, it's just a movie, or just a video game, is all of these things are stories drawn on the moral philosophy of real people. Like, real people made this. Real people put their heart and soul into these products, into these pieces of media. So it's not crazy to base, you know, your life values or or motivations off of those things as like, oh my gosh, that's so absurd. Why would you base anything you do in life off of a cartoon? It's like I'm basing it off of what the real life author put into this project and that I am absorbing from it. No one would ever say you were crazy for changing your life based on a book that you read, 
right? No one would say that that was absurd. So why is it different just because it's an animated project? Yeah, I was just thinking about this recently where, you know, the topic of, you know, positive role models, like, does that even exist anymore? And I'm like, yeah, it does because, but, you know, it does, but then, then, but then there's going to be that stigma of like, well, you know, so-and-so doesn't count because they're fictional. Well, why, why shouldn't they count? You know, like having, having like positive, you know, even, even if it's, even if something is fictional, having like a positive role model can, you know, make or break a person truly. Yeah. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And, you know, speaking to my own experience, like when I was a kid, like I talk about, uh, my, my parents not being around a ton because they were in the military and with deployments in the Navy and, and, and going all over the world. I, in a lot of ways, I was raised by anime and video games. I was raised by the protagonist in these stories, by the characters in these stories. You know, those were the people that I looked to as a child because there was nobody else around. So it's like <laughs> you, you got to find it somewhere. And I, I'm an only child, so I have no siblings um, and, and, you know, I didn't grow up with like cousins and aunts and uncles. Like I, I came from a, a relatively small family and that's just my experience. And so I, I think about if I didn't have those role models, I, I don't know where I would have gotten maybe that, that influence from, maybe it would have come from an, another type of media, or maybe I would have gotten involved in something else. But I, I know that for me, those things were so intr- instrumental in such a formative stage of my life. Yeah. I mean, just because it's fictional doesn't mean, you know, it's not, it wasn't made by a real person, you know, it's still, you know, written by a person. It was still like, you know, they're using this media to express their views, sometimes good, sometimes bad. You know, I'm obviously not saying like, oh, you should believe everything you see on TV or whatever. Obviously not, you know, obviously, you know, we've seen what happens when, um, people take that good and white mentality and just like apply it to every issue ever. And then it ends up becoming toxic and uh, yeah, awful. <laughs> but, but I do think that, you know, you know, I do think that the power of storytelling and the power of media can, um, can affect, can have a positive change on people. 10 out of 10 agree. And, and you know, as you say that, it makes me wonder, I have a question for you. Um, I don't know what you do for, for, for day to day. Do you work in any kind of creative field? Cause you sound like someone who wants to, to create to some extent. Oh, that's a, that's a whole other conversation. That's like a, <laughs> that's like a, a, a six hour podcast talking about a different what? show, different show, <laughs> man, you know, I just like, I'm just like looking at the time. I'm like, oh man, I don't. I don't have time to go into my like, extent, ex- existential <laughs> crisis that I that I went through during COVID and what have you. I understand. I understand. Well, I'm I'm sure at some point we'll get the full story on. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, anyway, uh, before I wrap this up, can you give us an update on what you're currently working on and where can people find you online? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, so if you're looking for my uh, social media stuff, you can find me at the Eli Farmer um, on both Twitter and Instagram, and then my website is elifarmer.com. Uh, and then as far as things that I am currently working on, 
scrolling through the mental Rolodex here. You know, really the only thing I would say is just keep on your radar is for when they make the announcement about the release date for Digimon, the movies part one. Uh, again, I don't know what that date will be, but keep an eye out for it. So follow Discotech Media on their social media um, at Discotech Media. And uh, yeah, I hope that you can join me in the digital world here and however long it takes for that announcement to be made. Thank you so much for taking the time out to do this. This has been um, a lot of fun. And if you ever want to come back, you know where to find me. <laughs> All right. I appreciate it. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.